Hi everyone, Rusty here. Thanks for tuning in to my latest episode. If you like this episode, you can find more resources like this. From blogs to videos to podcasts, I share lessons I've learned over the years from being a pastor, husband, and father. Get engaged and subscribe now by visiting PastorRustyGeorge.com. Well, Carl, it's so great to have you on the podcast, and uh, I was just honored to have you uh, sharing insights with us. For our listeners who may not be familiar with you or have read some of your work, uh, give us a brief history of Carl and a little bit about your life and what got you to where you are today. Well, the brief history of Carl is not all that exciting, but such as it is, uh, I'm actually a third-generation pastor. And um, I started pastoring on my own a little over 30 years ago. Uh, first, you know, all, all three of the churches that I've been in have been smaller churches. The first one was a tiny little chapel in the Redwoods in Northern California. Uh, the second one was in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area. And that was a very short and very difficult season for us. But for the last 25, over 25 years now, I've been pastoring in Fountain Valley, California, uh, just about eight miles south of Disneyland, smack in the middle of very heavily populated Orange County. So uh, when we got there 25 years ago, they had been through uh, five pastors in 10 years, and uh, they were really hurting. And uh, we had come from a difficult place, and we were really hurting. Uh, on a big Sunday, they ran about 30 people, and they had almost voted to close the doors at one point. But they thought, let's give this one more try. And I was, the, I was the guy that came in to give them that one more try. And um, it was slow going. It took about seven years to go from 30 to about 75. But more important than the numbers, it was about seven years before we really got healthy. And finally, at about the seven-year point, I sat there and said, okay, I think, I think we've got what I would actually consider a very healthy church right now. And I was actually at the time literally sitting in my car in the driver's seat in the parking lot of the church. And I thought, wow, it feels like I've been under the hood of this church for seven years and we finally got the engine humming and it's healthy and I'm sitting behind this steering wheel and I have no idea where to take it. <laughs> so that was when I went to our leaders and said, and get, told them exactly that illustration and said, okay, we, we can't just be a nice church where everybody's happy and likes each other and we don't have any big problems anymore. We've got to take this thing somewhere. And so we started doing that. We started reaching out into our community and trying to figure out what it was that God had really called us to do. And in the next seven or eight years, um, we uh, started reaching out. And we actually, at about year 16 or 17, we hit uh, about 160, 170. And then shortly after that, we were running about 200. And um, at 200, that was when we looked around. At 200, we have a tiny, tiny uh, little chapel uh, for a building. And at 200, we were filling it pretty solidly twice on a Sunday morning. So I looked around and found a local junior high school. We rented the room that I like to call the Cafe Gymnatora Librarium, <laughs> that, you know, that multiple-use room that everybody uses. Of course. And it was it, it seated maybe three to 350. And um, in the next 20 months after we moved Sunday mornings over to there, we grew from 200 to 400. So we doubled in 20 months. And I thought, wow, well, this is onward and upward now. I even went to the deacon board at that point and said, um, well, we've gone from 200 to 420 months. We're going to be at 600 in another two years. So we need to hire a staff for 600. And they agreed. And uh, at, shortly after we hired that staff and um, – thought we were going to move forward, it started dropping in the other direction. And 
it went from 200 to 402 years, and then in less than a year, it went down to well under 100. Mm. So I was left reeling. The church was left reeling. There had been no scandal. There had been no split. Uh, there were no obvious problems anybody could point to. And so we were trying to figure out what in the world is going on here. And during that season for that and a bunch of other reasons, I um, decided I I've got to get away uh, and I maybe get away permanently. I didn't know. But I took a 40-day retreat. And during that 40 days, spent some time uh, with a counselor, actually, who had been a pastor himself, and tried to figure out from him what had gone on and what was going on with me, why I was so frustrated, so hurt, so angry over what had happened. And that he, he helped me to understand how to redefine success in ministry. And a big part of that redefinition of success in ministry for me was to understand that while I'm in a small church, we need to do small church well. And so that was when I started on my journey to discover what a healthy small church looks like and then to start to share it with others. You write about that in the book, uh, The Grasshopper Myth, uh, which is just a, a phenomenal concept that comes right out of Scripture. Would you uh, take our listeners through that a little bit? Yeah, well, The Grasshopper Myth, it's one of those titles that makes you explain yourself. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> so first of all, the title comes from the book of Numbers, where the spies go into the land and 10 of them come back with the report that uh, the people there are of great size, or one translation says there are giants in the land. And then they use this telling phrase, we seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. And uh, what I discover in that passage is the place you'd see the grasshopper first is in your own mirror. And if you don't see a grasshopper in your own mirror, then no one else will see a grasshopper in you. Um, and what had happened to me and what often happens to a lot of small church pastors is we maybe look around at the giants around us, whether they're in our town or in our county like they are in my county, or whether they're just simply the big churches that you've heard about. Uh, we look around and we see those giants and we start thinking, well, we're just a grasshopper. And so uh, the book, The Grasshopper Myth, which was the first thing I wrote, it was just kind of this explosion of, of emotional research, really, that came out of that, that season that I just described. Uh, it was my expression of my story, my frustration, my getting healing out of that frustration, and then hoping to help encourage other small church pastors who might feel like a grasshopper. Uh, and what I discovered was the giants in the land aren't trying to make us feel small and feel bad. If we don't allow ourselves to see a grasshopper in our own mirror, if we don't see our own ministry as inferior, then nobody else's big ministry can make us feel inferior because we're, we're going to know that we are right where God placed us. I love that, that imagery. And I, and I want to circle back to something that you said in regards to you, you feel like you finally got healthy as a church. And then you talked about uh, another aspect of that health being not seeing yourself as a grasshopper, but do small church well. Tell me about some of the systems you had to put in place to reach church health more than just church growth. It was Well, it, it was about a mindset first and systems later. Um, so the first thing that had to happen was we had to change our mindset. The, the first thing that the small church pastors and small churches need to know is that you can be a great church while you are small. So that's the biggest mindset that needs to be shifted. We think, well, we've got to get big before we can really be doing great ministry. And, and that simply isn't so. 
you've got to start doing great ministry now and you can do great ministry now. So that mindset is the first thing has to shift. And then systems wise, the big mistake I made and one of the big reasons why our church collapsed after we grew from 200 to 400, the big mistake I made systematically was I wasn't doing what the Bible tells us that the pastor's prime mandate is, which is to equip God's people to do the work of ministry out of Ephesians 4 verses 11 and 12. Mm -hmm. I wasn't equipping the people. I was hiring professionals. Like I said, when we got to 400, we hired staff for 600. Well, if we'd been equipping God's people for work or ministry, we would not have needed to do nearly as much hiring because the people in the church would have been ready to handle the growth. So people have asked me since then, if you grew again like that, what would you do? And my answer right now is we'd do just fine, thank you very much. Uh, we could double in the next two years if God brought that increase, and we could do it without hiring anybody from the outside right now because we have trained our own people to be leaders and they are stepping up and they are doing that. So the only system we the only system we really concentrated on was simply how do we do discipleship better? And so we've shifted different curriculums and we've done that through different ways, but the concentration has always been on equipping God's people to do the work of ministry, stronger discipleship, raising disciples up to be disciple makers, and that's made all the difference for us. I have a friend that's a pastor of a small church, um, as we would define small, and he uh, asked me to ask you, and I thought this was a great question, uh, what are some of the best questions to ask for self-assessment of your congregation and leadership to basically determine health? Well, that is a good question. That's one that I have not been asked yet. I'm always grateful for something out of the blue like that and nice and new. Yeah, what are some of the best questions to ask for self-assessment for the health of a church? Um, the, one of the things I learned when that in that counseling time where you know I almost left the church, uh, when he said I had to redefine success in ministry, one of, what he said was you have to define success in ministry without numbers attached to it. And we're so numerically based in our culture, it's really hard for us to even think of what that might be. So some of the th questions that we need to ask are questions that are, that are not numerically based. Questions like, are we discipling people? Um, what, what does it look like when uh, a new idea is introduced, let's say? Does the church, is the church uh, embrace new methods and new ideas, or is there a constant saying no? When the church is open to try new things, when, peop when people in leadership in the church can make mistakes and that's not fatal, but instead people just kind of shake it off and go, okay, that didn't work. Let's try something else. There's an indicator of health. So it, our, our leaders are allowed to make mistakes without getting their head handed to them. There's a good one. Uh, are the young people being not just encouraged, but actually given positions of responsibility and authority within the church? Are we giving them the keys? Sometimes literally, are we giving them the keys? Because if we want young people to come to the church, we can't ask them to fit into the old way of doing things. We have to adapt to the new ideas that they're gonna bring. So when they do that, on the other side, are we respecting the wisdom of our elders who are stepping up and maybe giving warning signs, not because they're old fuddy-duddies, but because they've actually got some wisdom and they're saying, hey, wait a minute, maybe, you know, just one series after another based on movies might not be getting us the depth that we require here. 
you know, the occasional one, okay, but hey, how about a verse to verse through a book of the Bible occasionally? When somebody steps up and asks that, maybe we ought to take them seriously. So there's all kinds of different ways that we need to look around. So respecting our elders, making sure the youth are, are, are bringing in things, um, are bringing in new ideas and we're respecting them. Is, is uh, are, are mistakes fatal? Those kinds of questions are the things that we need to be asking and none of them are numbers based. And the smaller the church is, here's the key, the smaller the church is, the more we need to look at uh, ideas in the church to uh, understand health without numbers attached to it. One of the things I really like to encourage small church pastors to do is to start what I like to call a healthy church log. Let's say, for instance, as a, as a pastor, you spent some time helping a couple that was on the verge of divorce, and now their marriage is healthy, and they're not going to get a divorce. Well, you can't put that in any denominational report in any kind of a numerical fashion to say, hey, our church is healthy because that those people are still together. They might not even be able to get up on a Sunday morning and give that testimony because that would freak their kids out. Their kids don't want to know they almost got divorced. Nobody may ever know that but the pastor, but the couple and the pastor who counseled them. So how do we keep record of that? Pastor, write it down in a private journal that you call your healthy church log and then when you start feeling discouraged that our church isn't moving forward, you look back and you take a look and you remind yourself of all the things God has used your church to do that don't have numbers attached to them. That's so good. Let, let me ask this. This just came to mind um, because I'm thinking about the pastor out there who's interviewing at a church and they want to make sure they're getting into a healthy situation. And we know the right questions to ask. And you might ask a question like, are mistakes fatal around here? Um, are you open to uh, a building program? Should we need it? Those kind of things. Um, and most eldership and staff is going to say, oh, absolutely. You bet. We're healthy. Everything's fine. Are there, are there a few good questions that, that a, a potential pastor or a candidate could ask to just kind of get an indicator as to what's really going on around there? Yeah. Oh, that's a, that's, boy, that's another, that's a loaded one, isn't it? Because every one of us knows that situation. In fact, it's funny, as you say that, I'm checking on my phone here now because just the other day I tweeted an older post that dealt with that issue and I'll, I'll get with to the, to the issues in it in a moment. But I'm, what I'm looking up is one of the responses from somebody, here we go. I took a, a little clip out of that article. How does a prospective pastor know if a church's cries of, yes, we want to change, are real or just lip service? Mm. And somebody responded to that tweet. This is how. Don't believe them. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't even respond because I thought, boy, that's somebody who's really, really hurting. Right. You know, you don't respond that way. I get that it's snarky and I get that it kind of invites somebody wanting to push back. But boy, oh boy, there's a whole, you know, we can laugh at the way it was said, but the bottom line is there's a whole lot of, a whole lot of real hurt behind that kind of right. a statement where you just can't believe them because it's never, ever going to be that way. And I get it because there's a whole bunch of churches that have, you know, had that kind of, um, you know, situation. So what kind of, what kind of questions do we ask? Here are a couple of things, ways that you want to approach it. First of all, Ask, how has the church made changes in the past? When changes have been proposed in the past, how did that work out for you? 
um, because the best predictor of the future is the, is the past. Um, you know, if they say, well, it hasn't gone so great in the past, people haven't really warmed up to it, but we're ready now. Oh, maybe not. So that's something you want to do. Um, you know, are, are, are mistakes fatal? If we do make a mistake, what are you going to do about it? There's another one. Um, ask the leaders, do you think the congregation is behind this? And ask some congregation members, do you think the leadership is open to change? Mm. Um, I, I, I've known pastors who've gone to both situations where all the leaders are, are ready for it, the congregation isn't, but we're the leaders, so we'll get them through. Or the whole congregation is ready to change. There's a couple leaders that aren't, but that's okay. We'll overwhelm them with our numbers. And that never works. That mm-hmm. never works. I mean, you're never going to get absolutely everybody on the page. But if they can't at least identify the one or two who are going to be against it and have give you some assurance that, that they really don't have that much uh, impact, then you really, really want to be careful about that. Another thing you can do is can you identify those who are going to be the ones that I'm going to have a challenge with. And can I sit down and have a, actually have a chat with them before I say yes? Hmm. That's a good one. You know, I, that, that happened to me 25 years ago at our congregation. I, I was told the names of two people who were going to be my problems. And I sat down with each of them separately. And I had a conversation with each of them separately and heard their hearts and found out that they did not deserve the reputations they had been given. And so I knew I could move forward with that. But I, I sat down and I had hard talks. I asked, I straight up asked them a question. Here's the reputation you have. Can you please answer that for me? Now, I know it's a hard question to ask, but I didn't have the job yet. How, they couldn't hurt me. Right. <laughs> right. Right. And yet, and if they could hurt me, then I needed to find out before I went and before I was in a position for them to hurt me. So ask those tough questions up front. That's good. That's so good. Okay, let's shift gears a little bit. Uh, you and I have talked uh, several times about the difference between being a chaplain and being a pastor. No disrespect to chaplains, but in the uh, pastoral world, um, talk me through, talk our listeners through the difference in those two and what people are commonly missing when they are trying to chaplain their church rather than pastor it. Yeah, it's an important distinction. And and I would add more than simply no disrespect to chaplain, great and awesome respect for chaplains. Mm-hmm. We simply need to understand that while the Venn diagram of pastor and chaplain has some overlap, they, are, they do not have a complete overlap. Uh, pastoring and chaplaining are two very different callings. And I'm going to oversimplify the role of chaplain. So if anybody who is a chaplain is listening, one, massive respect for you, and two, I am about to oversimplify your role. So please understand this is broad brush. You do a lot more than what I'm about to describe. Uh, But the big difference between chaplaining and pastoring is the chaplain, for the most part, brings ministry to people. So a, a hospital chaplain, a military chaplain, a prison chaplain, they go to places where people cannot get to a typical church, and they bring ministry to them and do ministry for them because they're in a position where they cannot do uh, certain amounts of ministry for themselves. So that's what a chaplain does. Too often, especially in smaller churches, the pastor is pastoring as though they're a chaplain. They think that their calling is to do the ministry for the congregation. And if you try to chaplain your church, you're going to be over your head at 
a dozen to 20 people. It's like trying to be a single parent to 20 kids. And in fact, it's not because a parent of 20 kids knows that they got to use the old kids to help the younger kids. <laughs> so, you know, a parent of, of a ton of kids actually usually does a better job than a lot of pastors of small churches if we're trying to chaplain everybody. Right. So that's what chaplaining looks like. But pastoring goes back to what we talked about earlier. It's It has to do with discipling. It has to do with, with equipping the people to do the work of ministry. So when we are pastoring, we are actually equipping and then releasing people to do work of ministry. Sometimes people will go, oh, yeah, okay, delegating. I need to delegate responsibility, but I've tried to delegate and they won't do it. Well, the word in Scripture isn't delegating. The word in Scripture is equipping. You can't delegate to them until you've equipped them, which means training them and resourcing them, really walking through what Jesus did with the 72, right? Where he trained, they walked with him, he trained them, he sent them out two by two, and that's a, a critically important aspect of this. Don't send them out as lone rangers. We're not meant to do ministry by ourselves. Send them out in partnerships, see how well they do. Then they come back and Jesus says, give me a report of what you did. And then he assessed their report and told them, you did this well, but you could have done this over here a little bit better. So when we are equipping people, we're not just delegating them, sending them out and hoping they get it done and then, oh, they didn't do it well, so I got to do it myself from now on. We, we walk with them, we resource them, we train them, we get them, we send them out to do a little bit on their own. We assess how well they did. We tell them this was great. You can do this better, a little bit better next time until after uh, uh, doing that on multiple occasions, then they're ready to release and do on their own. And then the final piece, and this is huge, with responsibility, we've got to give them authority. Never give somebody the responsibility for ministry without giving them authority within that ministry. If they have to clear everything through the pastor and they have no authority, then you have no right to give them that responsibility. Well, that's so well said. And I noticed what you did not say, and that is six weeks of Saturday morning classes from nine <laughs> to noon in the gymatorium, <laughs> which yep. is typically how we pastor the life out of people. Um, okay, so what you described there is a, a word that, that circles back around, and unfortunately, we lose track of it at times, and that's the word mentoring. Would you talk about your discovery in that and how that is how you kind of define uh, discipleship or spiritual formation in people? Yeah, mentoring is, is such a critical, uh, important thing. What, what you just described, you know, the six weeks of, of, of classes, there's nothing wrong with that, uh, but it, 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 it's, it should be. But if, if we do it even and we don't have to do it in that format, but even if we choose to do some aspect of discipleship within that format, it should only be some aspect of it. Too often people think, well, I'm going to buy a curriculum and they're going to go through the class. And basically what we're doing is we're handing off the responsibility for discipleship to David C. Cook. Right. Right. And, and all they're doing is finishing classes. They're not really getting discipled, but they think they're discipled. And we think they're discipled because they went through the class. And then when we hand them the responsibility, they can't do it. Why? Because all they did was sit in a class. They got some head knowledge. It'd be It's great head knowledge, but it's better if it's attached to actual real world reality. And that's what mentoring does. Mentoring is the oldest and most successful 
uh, training for leaders ever devised. It was the method that was used by Jesus, by the Apostle Paul, by all of the early disciples. We're walking through life together. We're demonstrating how to do things for them. And then we're releasing them into ministry. Now, real quick, before every pastor sit there goes, I can't mentor every individual in my church. What you're thinking of is you're, you're thinking of sitting down over coffee with everybody in the church one-on-one. That's not mentoring. That's code, that's codependence or that, that's a recipe for disaster for you. That's for sure. Uh, the actual missing ingredient to most of what we call mentoring is the group dynamic. Most of the best mentoring is done in a group. I remember when I was a kid and I don't, I was really young and I heard for the first time ever, I heard about Alcoholics Anonymous and I heard you get a whole bunch of drunks and you put them in the same room together. And I thought, that's the biggest recipe for disaster I ever heard. They're just going to get each other drinking. But no, the group dynamic actually makes a difference because when you get in the group, somebody in that group is going to be ahead of you on your path and can help you. And somebody in the group is going to be behind you on that path and you can help them. And in the dynamic of people sharing a similar struggle, but each helping the other in areas that they've struggled with, that's where the mentoring comes in. So in a church, instead of just starting another Sunday school class, pastors need to look around and find people who are willing, available, and able to be mentored. And all three of those things matter. They have to be willing to be mentored. Yeah, I'm willing to sit under somebody else and learn. Two, I'm able to do so. That is, I have the, I have the, I, I have the, the capacity to become a leader. Uh, I'm not just going to sit and, I'm not going to be the person who sits on the edge complaining about anything. I've got a willing heart. And then thirdly, I'm available. My schedule fits, quite frankly. Sometimes it's just about the schedule for now. And so what you want to do is you want to find three or four folks who are able to get together on a Thursday night, once a month, or whatever that, or whatever it might be that fits your schedule. And then the dynamic of the group actually starts taking over, and it provides a momentum so that you don't have to provide all of the momentum mm. because they start holding each other accountable as well. So mentoring becomes a real key. And the smaller the church is, the more we get to mentor. Part of the reason we have curriculum, one, is because it helps you know keep us between theological guardrails and it can give us a good timeline and so on. But one of the main reasons we have curriculum is when the group gets too big to mentor. Um, but so, you know, as long as it's small enough to mentor, we ought to do all the mentoring that we can. Well, Carl, this has been fantastic. And I love what you said there because it not only helps us learn how to mentor, but how to be mentored, which is an availability and a willingness um, which at some point in our life is how we got to where we are and obviously will keep us going. So uh, I'm just honored to um, have a few moments to be mentored by you in this knowledge. This is fantastic and for our listeners too as well. So Carl, thank you so much. I want to end our time with the three questions that uh, we ask everybody that I shamelessly stole from William Vanderblumen. And that, and I feel like I have to give him credit every time because I don't know if he'll, he, he might one day listen. Um, the, the first is a, a favorite book that you've been reading. The second is a favorite app you've been using. And the third is a favorite stage mistake you have participated in or seen. And so we'll start with uh, your f- favorite book you've been reading. Gotcha. 
Yeah, I just finished. Um, this is not gonna. This is not gonna sound typical for a pastor, but it's a book called Lust for Life, which is the biography of Vincent Van Gogh by Irving Stone. It's it's over 50 years old, but it's pretty much considered the definitive, or at least the most popular, uh, uh, biography of Vincent Van Gogh, the great painter. And, you know, I, I have zero understanding of art. I have no idea why Van Gogh is great art and uh, Thomas Kincaid is is considered schlocky. I, I I know that's the truth. I have no idea why. Um, but Vincent Van Gogh, one of the great artists who changed the way we perceive art, and yet he was a lost soul without question. And yet the only reason he became a great artist, he only actually sold one painting in his entire lifetime. But his brother, who was actually an art dealer, saw the genius in him and actually paid for everything for him, supported him rent and food and housing for virtually his entire life to support what he knew was great art even when nobody else saw it. And at the center of Vincent van Gogh's story is a brother who loved him and supported him when nobody else could see his greatness. And there's just a real touching story there. So Lust for Life, Irving Stone, great book. You know, I've heard um, you mention that before, and I actually just got my copy of it in the mail, so I'm excited to read it. Because, oh, there you go. Yeah, uh, yeah, you'll enjoy it. There's a part of, at the beginning, especially when he spent, he actually wanted to become a minister, and he went to the coal mines of Belgium to be a minister. Uh, and, and the story of the harrowing stories of the coal miners are, are, are just the, the, the pictures of it are sticking in my brain just from reading it. You're, you're going to love it. In fact, I'd love to hear back from you after you finish it. How you like it? I'll Let's do read. it. I'll do it. OK. Uh, app. The, the app. Um, there's a great app out there called Mention. And uh, it, it, it doesn't work as well on the phone. I don't know why it used to, but lately it doesn't. But if you've got a laptop, go to mention.com. And what Mention does is it allows you to uh, put in up to three search terms. And it then automatically and for free for the first three search terms will constantly monitor the entire Internet and send you notices whenever those terms appear. So, for instance, if you want to monitor your name or your church's name or your ministry's name and find out, are other people talking about you online? Are people talking about your church online? Or are people talking about your ministry online? Enter those terms, and every single time they appear, they will uh, they will come unmentioned. So I'm, I get to monitor that conversation. And every once in a while, I jump in a conversation where somebody's talking about my book, and they go, how did you even know that we were talking about you? Uh, I got this little secret app called Mention that helps me do that. So That's great. That's the app. And then the story. All right, have I got a story for you. Um, this didn't happen to me, but it happened while I was there way back in the day, my first couple years in ministry, I was, uh, associate pastor on staff at a large church. And this was way back in the day of choirs and choir robes. I know there are still some churches that have this, that, but back then everybody did. And the choir was finished with their song. They left stage and one of the choir members was going to sing a solo that morning. And so she went out and she prepared really quickly, took off her robe and got things ready. And then when her name got called to go come up and sing the song, she got up and she turned into the pulpit and faced the congregation. And this is back in the day when the entire staff sat on stage. And so I was sitting on stage with four or five other staff members. And so she was she turned around and now she was facing away from us. And what she didn't know was that in her rush to leave the choir room and come out for her solo, she had tucked the top of her skirt into the top of her pantyhose. 
<laughs> and so now the entire staff was sitting behind her with a view that we really felt entirely inappropriate to be looking at. And so we're trying to not look like we're ignoring her because we're sitting on stage after all. So trying to look in her general direction without looking at something she was not intending to show us. And then she proceeded to sing the song. And I am not kidding. She sang the song. His eye is on the sparrow and I know he watches me. <laughs> and I do not know how all of us made it through that intact, but somehow we did. And she had a great sense of humor about it at the end of the year at the choir Christmas banquet, they actually gave her a pair of bloomers as a joke and she had a good laugh over it. <laughs> I'm sure a story she loves to tell as well. <laughs> yeah, I would hope so. She, she was a great person with a great heart and a great sense of humor. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, Carl, this has been uh, just wonderful and so enriching and I so appreciate your time and willingness to help out churches, church leaders, and um, just to make a huge impact in the world, which you've already done. And so thank you for your time, and we hope to talk to you again. You got it, Rusty. Thanks. Well, thanks again for tuning in to this latest episode. I hope you found it insightful and helpful for making real life simple. If you found this episode helpful, be sure to share it with friends. Also, if you have any questions, be sure to share them on my Facebook page, at Rusty L. George. Have a great week, and don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or through your favorite podcast app.